My name is Mike Charles and you're joining me for an intimate at-home conversation getting to know the artist Natasha Barnes and she's right opposite me here in her living room with with a very cozy setup here there's a cat on the lap and Natasha thanks for inviting us into your home hello Mike and welcome to my home and we're talking about your life getting to know the artist Natasha Barnes as an actual a real person not just a brand although we're going to be getting into uh, how you built your brand and the idea is that we've got a podcast series planned out here the first installment getting to know Natasha podcast number two we'll be heading into the studio and finding out about your process your creative process and in the third installment we'll be heading to the art fairs with you and finding out how you actually sell your art and take it to market because that's a a whole nother ball game that is a whole different level mark and uh, we've got enough information here to fill a hundred podcasts so i'm trying to condense it for my listeners so that they can get to know me i think it's important if you're going to be buying art especially online you want to feel comfortable with the person that you're buying the art from a lot of people know me from my prints i've got um, a lot of um publications out around the world so apart from being published as a cookery author and a writer of books I'm also um, considered to be one of Africa's most published artists Wow! and uh, what that really means is that um, people take my art and then they make posters from it so you get limited and open editions and we sell these mainly across the world in like decor kind of environment so you can go along to Ikea for example and one of my earliest artworks, in fact, done in 1998 that became commercially available, went into 19 million catalogues in Ikea. And I think that was kind of my breakthrough. You're joking. Ikea, mega brands. Yeah. I mean, this is, wow. Did art find you or did you find art? <laughs> Take us on a journey. Take us on a journey. I think art found me. It wasn't uh, intentional. My parents were always very open and um, relaxed about whatever I wanted to do with my life. My career was my own choice. Yeah. So I kind of went off and I thought, oh, I fancy going to cooking school. It sounded so glamorous. I could make all these wonderful cakes. Oh, yeah. So in my mind, cooking school was about baking beautiful wedding cakes. I never really thought that you probably had to cut up a couple of tons of onions in the kitchen as an appy to get to <laughs> bake the beautiful cakes. Yeah. But I kind of went off to cooking school and my mom said to me uh, when I was in about grade nine, she said, don't you want to go to study art? And I said to her, no, I don't need to go to art school. I'm going to be an artist anyway. And that's something that um, she reminded me of many years later. Really? And it was kind of one of those situations where I went to cooking school, I became the chef, I baked the beautiful wedding cakes. I had 10 glorious years as a cookery writer for one of the leading food magazines of the day. And it was highly creative because I was able to um, do food styling, which is something that the cookery school, which I went to, um, kind of said, look, this is the, the direction you should go in because you're very talented and you've got an eye for food, and you've got a, but you've also got a very good eye for uh, food styling and, and you're a good writer. So I kind of uh, took my career into becoming a cookery writer And I spent many years um, doing that. And then, you know, life happens while you're planning other things. (laughs) Isn't that what John Lennon said? Yeah. And I found myself in a completely different direction in a very short space of time. And it was one of those things after it happened, I looked back and I thought, 
how did I how did this happen? How did I get here? So yes, art found me. And let's drill down into that and, and look at that path of yours. How did this this path start to evolve? Well, once I was at the school, um, we would go off and do in-service training. And I always found that I was naturally drawn to any of the placements that was highly creative. As opposed to cooking, I was drawn to the placements where we could learn something more about, like, let's say, wedding functions and doing the wedding cakes and, and doing that. I found myself naturally drawn to the classes that were more creative. And after about uh, two years at the school, I did a final year and I did my higher diploma in it. So I've actually got a Cordon Bleu cookery diploma. Wow. um, Three-year diploma. And I did another year in Durban where I studied advanced cake decorating. So the creative side came out. And I ended up working at a hotel in Durban called the Oyster Box. Oh, yes. Yes, everyone knows the Oyster Box. Very well known. <laughs> Although maybe if you're listening to this in a far-flung corner of the, the, the globe, you haven't heard of the Oyster Box, but now you have. <laughs> and uh, it was a wonderful time for me. I, I lived on the premises and I was one of the, uh, the chefs. Um, there were 13 chefs at the time. And um, it was just a very big, happy kitchen. And I just kind of carried on. And afterwards... Uh, when I'd finished my final year, because, you know, I kind of did the in, my in-service training there, I got a phone call from the school. Uh, it was called Silwood Kitchens uh, School of Cookery, and, and that's in Rondebosch, Cape Town, a hugely prestigious Cordon Bleu school, mm. started by the famous Mrs. Leslie Fall. And she actually called me herself and said that a position had become available at this fa- uh, magazine where I could then uh, become a food writer. And that's how I progressed to become a food writer and food stylist. So the, the creative tug has, has always been there. I think the thing that Natasha is really and, and where you, you can never go wrong is you have to let her create. So it doesn't really matter what I'm doing as long as I'm doing something creative every day. So whether it's cooking or painting or perhaps trying my hand at crochet or baking, whatever I can do, as long as I'm making things, I'm happy. Yeah. And if I think back to my childhood, even as a, as, a, as a little girl, I grew up on a farm running around. I would often play with the local farm uh, kids and they would have this clay that they would dig out of the riverbanks that they used to make their clay pots from that they fired in open pits and yeah. and the little what they call doll also little kind of um, clay figurines I used to play with and I used to sit there in amazement that these people could sculpt these little things and it just all I wanted to do was make it and mm. and I was always running around looking for stuff to make things with so. Who is Natasha? She's someone that has to create every day of her life. Wow. And talking about those early creative experiences, how important are your roots in Africa for your creativity and your identity? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I couldn't see myself anywhere else in the world. So many people have said to me, Natasha, you've achieved so much with your life and You've been all over the world and you sell in New York and Paris and London and Rome and Tokyo and you've really achieved all of this, but you've never left your shores. You've, you've never lived anywhere else. And, and that's very important to me because my roots um, as an African is, is extremely um, 
grounding is the word I want to use. And my family history goes back many, many years. So things like this wow. to me and history and what brought us to this to these shores are very, very important to me. And uh, I hope to remain here. Well, we're here right now and we're in the, the home of the artist. Where are we right now, Natasha? Just to orient ourselves into... <laughs> we are in Umshlali, <laughs> which is uh, in KwaZulu-Natal. And that is on the north coast of South Africa. It's absolutely beautiful. You you would agree, Mark? Totally. Today especially. It's yeah. a blue sky, sunshiny day. Beautiful winter's day. You never say it was winter, though. No, never. <laughs> That's what I love. I love the coast. Um, I'm not a big sea person, so um, I like the visual of the coastline, but you're not going to find me on the beach. Let's put it that way. I hear you. The, the thoughts of the ocean, the, 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 the aesthetic and the... the the vibe, but uh, you're a you're a landlubber. I'm a landlubber. I love mountains and I love the trails, and um, I definitely love the bush. So part of that whole African uh, theme for me is the bushveld and the real raw Africanness of it. That's what I love. You know, sunsets and just beautiful dusty roads and lots and lots of wild animals. Fantastic. And to return to our earlier train of thought, you've always had this this connection to to creating a, not just a visual art sense, but on a food front, in the written word as well. Let's talk about your cooking and your writing. Cooking and books, that's always been a big part of Natasha Barnes, hey? It has. And, you know, um, when I finished with the, the cooking at the magazine, there was a, a little time, an interim period, where I actually had two cooking schools. And this is a very uh, little-known fact. Not a lot of people know that uh, the cooking school was at a maximum security prison. What? <laughs> Come again? I know, I know. So um, for about five years of, of my life, um, I had these two maximum security um, cooking schools, and I would teach mainly men how to cook, and we would rehabilitate them so that they could have a skill when they left the prison that they were able to find gainful employment. Wow. So that was a, a part of my life where it was, it was very hard because it wasn't an environment that someone as creative as myself, far, it wasn't conducive to, to me. And, but I used to paint in the afternoons and I used to cook in the mornings. And so I, I gave back a lot to the community so for myself, I feel I've done my dues. I've, I've, you know, a lot of people get to the end of their life and they think, oh, I'm going to do volunteer work or I'm going to start this organization or whatever. I did my life in reverse and I spent those five years and helped them find gainful employment. And um, one day I was actually driving down uh, the, the old West Street, what it was called in Durban, if you know Durban. And this guy came running up to my car window and he started banging on it. And I got such a fright. I thought, oh, my goodness, what's, what's happening? What's happening? And he said, hello, Natasha, do you remember me? And it was somebody I had taught in prison. And he was released and he'd found a job. And he was working at a, at a, a, a fast food outlet. And he was on his lunch break and he saw me and at, the, at the traffic lights. So I kind of had like a little moment there. But um, so that was the, that was the in-between years. And then... I used to paint in the afternoons and in the mornings, um, obviously did the, the cookery at the school. And then I kind of said to myself, I've given myself a timeline. And when I'm um, at this particular age, I think it was uh, 33 or 34, I want to finish with the cookery. 
and I want to be able to do my art professionally full time. So there was a two year transition period. And then the cooking uh, sort of seized and the art took off and I went into the art full time. And after about 10 to 15 years in the art industry, I'd obviously had all these wonderful experiences and enough to fill 10 books of stories. But I then one day woke up and thought, it's time for me to marry the two, to take all the experiences from my arts from around the world and my knowledge, my in-depth knowledge of all the food and the food writing and put them together and I want to write a book, which is, um, I did. The book was titled Culinary Adventures of a Travelling Cook. So it was published by Strake Random House, which is one of the biggest publishers now, I believe, in the world. And um, yeah, we sold um, some couple of volumes and it's still going as far as I know. And I absolutely, wow. it was a labor of love, loved the project. I think for a lot of people, that sounds like a kind of an idyllic gig. But when you have to try and marry all these things together and the travel as well, I mean, it's not all glamorous, let's be honest, it's a, it's a slog. Um, but you've been able to just sort of lead a life that I think a lot of people look at and think, man, she's got that balancing act down pat. And the art element as well, always running through it. When did you first put brush to canvas? Can you remember the, your earliest experiences with, with painting as a medium? And, and how far back does that go? I think my earliest memory was um, when I was about five, four or five, I would be drawing. And my mother obviously realized at that stage that she had a creative child on her hands. And she decided to take me to this um, old spinster in town um, who had trained as an artist and she was a fantastic puppeteer. I remember I was so afraid of this woman because she had all these puppets that she used to make for the National Theatre and she had these rooms that you had to pass to get to her studio. And she must have been oh, into her late 60s already when myself and my best friend at the time used to have to go to her on a Wednesday afternoon. And I found it terribly boring because we had to draw eggs and cylinders. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I was so scared of this woman. My mother used to pay one rand a month, which was probably, if, if you're listening from the US, I don't know what one rand is, probably a... It's a couple of cents. A couple of cents. And uh, I used to... I, that's kind of where it started. And um, then on to primary school, I used to win the prize every single year for art. And I was so disappointed that I couldn't get the maths prize because all the all the people that got the maths prize, I mean, they got all the glory <laughs> and all I ever got was art prize. But eventually I realized that this was something that I was good at and that I was going to do anyway. So yeah, it started at a very, very young age. I assume that as a professional artist, very in demand, internationally, you must have had a serious education in the visual arts. Where did you study art? Mark, it, it might come as a total surprise, but uh, I'm completely self-taught. Completely self-taught? Completely self-taught. I've had a few art lessons as a child, and there was a very famous artist in Kozulu Natal um, by the name of Richard Rennie, and he was a wonderful watercolorist. And I learned a lot of my trade from Richard Rennie in the early days. And he really encouraged me to follow it as a career because he said, you know, he thought I was very talented and I absolutely loved it. But it all came very naturally to me. So anything to do with using my hands 
and I've tried my hand at pottery. Um, there's only one thing I'm really bad at. <laughs> What's that? Sewing. <laughs> okay. We won't ask you <laughs> to turn out any, any large format. I tried to make a dress once and it ended up as being a scrunchie. So. <laughs> a limited edition Natasha Barnes. <laughs> Natasha no, Barnes. Don't, we're not going there. <laughs> uh, and yeah, hold, hold off on the scrunchie orders for now. So I'm just trying to trying to pull these these elements together. So we've got this creativity, which sort of transcends right through food, writing, uh, the, the visual arts. And then there's this, this sense of adventure as well. And there's this lust for life. You travel and you tackle crazy things, climbing mountains, I believe, or, or marathon running. Has this always been a part of your personality, this, this sense of a, adventure? Tell me about your running. My running. Oh, yeah. Sense of adventure, that's me. From day one. I think when I was about 11, I said to my mother, I'm going to go drive through Africa or cycle through Africa on my bicycle. And I actually forgot about it. And then when I was about 21, I was looking at one of these overland safaris and I announced to her that I was going to go on an overland safari. And she said to me, oh, thank goodness you're not going on your bicycle. And I said, Ma, where did you get that from? Where, where did that come from? And she said, you know, Natasha, when you were 11, you told me you were going to go through Africa on your bicycle. And you'd forgotten about I've that. I've forgotten about that, but she hadn't, <laughs> clearly. Um, so it's, it's, it really is, is in me, and um, I love that venture, and I love running. So you can marry the two, which is trail running. So that is my greatest pleasure in life. And... Um, Wow. It just gives me time to reconnect with myself, to reconnect with nature, and to just clear my head. Because as an artist, you spend a lot of time in your own company, and you spend a lot of time in your studio by yourself. So it can be quite a solitary life, and it gets me, gives me time, even if it's just an hour in the morning, to reconnect with my friends, and that's enough to rejuvenate me for the day and to give me some time just to reflect on what I need to do that day and how I'm going to place my day. Wow. And do you find that being out on the trail in nature, do you draw inspiration from that consciously or maybe just subconsciously? Subconsciously, absolutely. Everything I do, even in my own work, is quite influenced by nature and funny enough, the lotus flower. But that is something we can talk about in our next podcast when we delve into more depth about my process. Mm. But nature for me is very important, um, especially when you live in Africa. And, and Mark, you can see I'm, I'm literally 100 meters away from the nearest field. And in the mornings, I just put on my shoes and head out. With, at the moment, it's winter, so it's pitch dark, 5 o'clock. We start running on the dot. And uh, if you're not there at 5, we leave you behind. <laughs> we, we ain't going to slow down for anyone. <laughs> So uh, looking at the sense of, of, of drawing on your, your passion for nature, for the bush, for all things African, would you say that there is a, a signature Natasha Barnes aesthetic and style? Can, can you put a label on it? And uh, how did you arrive at the place that you're at right now? That's a very um, good question, Mark. And the answer to that is that each artist is their brand. So your style is your brand. And it's not something that you develop overnight. You've got to lock yourself away and really work on who you are. You can gain inspiration from other people around you. And back in the day when I started, you kind of your inspiration was your friend at the local exhibition or maybe from a book or a magazine. I mean, today with social media and the, um, computers and all the social influences we have around us it's a completely different 
kettle of fish. And the process might be speeded up. But at the end of the day, to gain that signature brand, and I do believe there is a very strong Natasha Barnes brand, took me at least 10 years to develop my style. And even now, there's still reflections of how it's changing because you as an artist revolved. And how I can say to people or what I can say to people is if you look at a picture of yourself in the 80s and you think, oh my goodness, look at the shoulder pads, Mm. look at that hairstyle. It's the same thing when we look at paintings. So paintings that I did 10 years ago, I would be wholly embarrassed because I've grown so much. Mm. But at the time, I was living the moment, and that was good enough for me. It's where my, my personality brand was at the time. But, and that's the, a lovely way of putting it. You have a personality brand which grows with your work, and it becomes your signature so that people all over the world can say, that's a Natasha Barnes. And for me, it's very important to be a leader and not a follower. Because there's a lot of people that play in this space. And if someone is successful, it's naturally, it's, it's a very natural thing to be, want to be like them because you want to be successful. And that is human nature. Mm. But if you want to play in this space, you have to create something that's unique. And it took me many years to accept that because I always wanted to be someone else. I'd always look to someone else and think, oh my goodness, they are amazing. I want to paint like that. But there are, for every person I want to paint like, there's another person who wants to paint like me. So it's just, it's human nature. And once I accepted my brand and accepted my signature and said, Natasha, if it's not broken, don't fix it. So you accept that, you realize you can't change your handwriting, no matter how much you try. Even if you drew with your left hand, you're not going to change it. Keep going with your style, build on the positives, build on the brand. Solid advice. And anyone listening to this who is in that process of trying to develop their own brand, I think uh, you're going to be getting some real pearls of wisdom over the course of this little podcast series. And for you, was there a particular moment where you decided to make the switch to professional artist? There was definitely a moment. And and that came in about 1998 when the cookery was was starting to phase the cookery out and I thought I would do the the art at the same time as I had the cookery schools. And um, it was, remember, I always had a plan because I'm always one of those people, if I know in two years' time I'm going to run an ultra, ultra, ultra marathon, then I will start training now, but not tell anyone, and then slowly work towards it so that the transition is easier. So Mm. I knew that I wanted to do that full time. Um, The market was buoyant. I I knew that I could make a living from it because up until then, I'd been painting and belonging to art societies in South Africa, just, you know, your usual society within your community. And every time there was an exhibition, I would sell all my work. So I was already selling and saving money on my own through that. And I knew that I could make a living from it. So it was a conscious decision that when the two years was up, that I would be fully functional as an artist, professional artist. And as things currently stand right now, you've you've got this brand that is now well established. You've got an international fan base of of, uh, avid supporters and buyers from literally uh, all around the world and an enviable space to be in, a position to be in for an artist. Some would say that you've, you've made it, you've, uh, you're living the dream. 
where do you see things heading at the moment? What are your plans and what do you see for the future of your sector? So I've been doing this for 25 years. It's, I've seen a lot. I've seen the, um, the dot-com bubble. Everyone turned on to well, started up with websites and said that this was the next way of selling art. So I've seen that come and go. I've been around for 9-11 where everyone thought that that was the end and we would never sell another painting. I was around for the 2008 um, recession and it took many years to get out of that, but we, we managed in that space. And in fact, at the time, I went into business with a friend and we had a, an, a gallery, which still exists today, but we did the shows together as a business and we started that in the recession and, and that grew from strength to strength. And then um, last year, I went on my own and started my own gallery space, which I call Barnes Collective. It's just a collective of artists that I like or work that I want to show. It's not a, a physical building. It's an online platform. And I use it particularly when I go to the art fairs around the world to do um, to show my work and to show other people's work and sell other people's work that I find sits well with my work. I have so many people reaching out to me all the time and, and not just since recent events. I really do feel that the future for art is going to be Instagram and social media. I won't say that the, the gallery will fall away because the gallery owner and the, and the gallerist plays a vital, vital part in the chain uh, for selling art and for collectors. So that, that can never not play in this space. The interesting thing about um, the art world as such is that we actually, nothing is a certainty. But as artists, we have to realize that if you have a strong brand and you have a strong social media presence, you're going to be okay. By starting to look at yourself and say, right, how can I improve my brand? What can I do for my business today to take me forward into this era where we are going to have to compete? And remember, you're not competing just with 2,000 artists at an art fair now, you're probably competing with 2 billion people. So the stakes are much higher and you've got to really bring your A game because the competition out there is immense. Hey, well, you're hearing it from a woman who has done exactly that with herself, her own brand as an artist, the artist, Natasha Barnes. We'll leave it here for now. Natasha, thank you for having us in your, your living room and uh, looking forward to delving deeper into your process in the next installment. Watch the space. Keep your ears peeled. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs>